enters here. A few preparatory comments this morning as you are turning to Judges chapter 4. That's a familiar passage. Most of you know uh, what we're studying in Judges chapter 4. We're obviously studying the Judges, uh, and in particular today we are looking at Deborah. Now, I am the one uh, today who will be leading our class, but do not be deceived, uh, many hands make light work. So I'm standing here, in a sense, as sort of a representative. Um, those of you who have seen the sign-up sheet might have noticed uh, that uh, it was actually Kathy DeRoe and I who were signed up together uh, to lead this. And, uh, and because we're a church that believes uh, what Paul says to Timothy, that uh, he does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I'm the one who's doing the teaching, but what we're going to see today is really the result of a collaborative effort. Uh, if you have spoken much to Steve Barry uh, about, uh, about studying the scriptures and learning the scriptures, you know one of the things he's excited about is studying the scriptures in community. Uh, and that's what Kathy and I have been doing over the last few weeks, praying over and studying uh, the scripture that we're going to look at today. Uh, and, uh, and so what you're going to hear is really sort of an inside look into our conversation and our time in prayer together as we go through uh, the study of Deborah. Uh, now, uh, another uh, preparatory comment, and, and that is that um, I'm going to try. Oh, no, the clock is gone. That's not good. That's not good for anybody. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to keep an eye on the time uh, because what I'd really like for us to do, oh my, is that really the time? Oh my. We're going to have to move through this very quickly. Uh, I'm going to try and keep an eye on the time as we get started uh, because what we're talking about today is the fact, and I'll give you all the, the metaphorical cookies right up front, all the good stuff. What we're going to see in the story of Deborah is that the Lord delights uh, to deliver his people in uh, extraordinary ways, ways that they might not expect. Uh, unexpected deliverances, we might call them. And you're going to see that. And I want to save some time at the end uh, where we can connect the dots to our own lives and see, well, how is the Lord uh, the same God that we saw with Deborah and Barak? And, and what is he doing in our lives? And so let's get started. We're going to read uh, this passage uh, in spurts. We're not going to read the whole thing, and we're going to read uh, chapter 4, though really, if you want the whole picture, you've got to read chapter 5, and maybe you can read uh, that later on your own. We're going to dip into it a little bit today, um, but you can think of uh, Judges chapter 4 and this, this narrative that we have, this historical narrative, almost as uh, an act in, or a play in four acts. That's the way we're going to look at it today. The first act is verses 1 through 3, and I'm titling this first act, How Did We Get Here From There? Now, uh, listen closely, and we'll see where the Israelites are and the situation that they're in. It says in Judges chapter 4, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in this first act. We want to get into uh, the, the story, really, of Deborah and Barak and Jael. 
But uh, as we're thinking about God's unexpected deliverance, you'll notice that if you're familiar with the book of Judges, that we start with something that is really not unexpected. In fact, it is quite familiar, all too familiar already uh, by Judges chapter 4. And this is the cycle of sin that the people are in. You can find that uh, illustrated back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. You might want to read that later. Uh, but what those verses show us is really what, what some scholars have called the Judges cycle. It begins as the people in the land who have not driven out the Canaanites uh, engage in idolatry. Uh, they go after the Baals and the Asherah, and they, they worship them. Uh, and the Lord disciplines his people by selling them into the hands of their enemies. Uh, and then, after being disciplined by the Lord, the people cry out to the Lord. Uh, and the Lord raises up judges to deliver them from their enemies. And normally, uh, while the judge lives, the people obey. But shortly after, not too long after the judge dies, we see what we found in verse 1. They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And such is the cycle throughout the book of Judges, that the people are consistently falling into idolatry, crying out to the Lord, uh, and being delivered by a judge. Now, um, the, the sin of Israel, especially in this first section, is highlighted by the mention of Jabin. Uh, Jabin is this Canaanite king, uh, and he reigns in Hazor. But if you went back and you were to read in Joshua chapter 11, uh, you would find that there was another Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And this is what it says in Joshua chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 says, And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, and he struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. So what we find is that by the time of the judges, after the death of Ehud, uh, a town that had been formerly raised by the Israelites, torn down and burned with fire, and the Canaanites kicked out and their kingdom destroyed. Uh, here in the Promised Land, the Israelites are not only not driving out the Canaanites, but allowing them to rebuild as well, turning a blind eye as another Canaanite nation raises up. Now, some scholars will say, oh, they're, they're conflating things here because how could you have another Jabin uh, who reigned in Hazor? Well, that's easy. Uh, how could you have another King Henry VIII? Uh, presumably seven before him, at least, who reigned uh, in England. So uh, not a problem there. It's, it's, it's just another name. But I think what the Lord is doing here is he's showing us the repetitive nature of our sin. And when we fall into sin, I think... Um, as uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it, what we see in this first section is that it is difficult to be creative in sin. There's a certain monotony about it. Most of all of it has been done before, and it's simply that we do the same thing again. Sin is a boring routine. It's not fresh excitement. The fast lane becomes an old rut. Evil never lends itself to originality. Hence, there are two problems, the slavery and the staleness of sin. I like that. That's what we see in Judges, and that's where the people begin. And we're, we're going to move on from here so we can find Deborah. But we begin with the slavery and the staleness of sin. This is a place that they have been before. And they cry out to the Lord, uh, and he delivers them, but he does it in a way uh, that is unexpected. So we move into Act 2. Uh, I'm calling this act, uh, Strength and Dignity Are Her Clothing. That's a, a quote from Proverbs 31. Uh, and we find here Deborah. Now let's read verses 4. Uh, through 10 together, uh, actually 4 through 11. 
Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, uh, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now, uh, the big focal point uh, of this second act is Deborah. Uh, And Deborah is the unexpected element in the story. We've seen already, by the time we get to to, uh, Judges 4, there have been three previous judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And so we're not surprised that the Lord raises up another judge to save and and to deliver his people. But we are uh, uh, sort of thrown off guard to see who exactly he raises up. So what is so different about Deborah? And we'll start with the very obvious stuff. What's so different about Deborah? Kathy? She's a woman. Uh, There's a big one. Uh, In fact, she is the only woman judge. Uh, She is the only woman, although we'll find later in the scriptures, uh, there are other important women in the Old Testament. uh, And and in the Old Testament time, uh, 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 queen mothers, rather, were were pretty important. But there was never a queen who reigned in Israel. There was never another female judge. And Deborah stands sort of in a, a place of her own. Uh, And she is called, uh, says that she judged Israel at that time. In fact, it points out that she was a woman. There's a redundancy. When you read it in the Hebrew, it actually says she was a woman prophetess. And now, it uses the feminine there to say prophetess, and that would have been enough. But it adds she was a woman prophetess. And when you get woman prophetess, it's kind of like a male actor uh, or a female waitress. You don't really need... Uh, the, the noun there, the adjective at the beginning, you could simply say prophetess, but it's drawing our attention to the fact that now Deborah was a woman prophetess, which brings us to the second different thing about Deborah. What's different about Deborah as a judge in Israel? She is married, absolutely. Uh, we don't really know much about the other ones, but it does say that she is married, and this is totally consistent with Israelite culture. If you name a woman, even an important woman, even a judge, you connect her to her husband. It's very patriarchal, and they're simply doing, uh, as, as the Lord is inspiring the writing of this word, yeah, she's married, here's her husband. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, that's important. Andrew, and then Frank. She is a prophetess. That's a big deal. Uh, she is the spokesperson for the Lord. Uh, she speaks for God, and, and it doesn't... 
uh, say anything. Uh, you know, today in Revelation, we're going to read about that Jezebel who, quote, calls herself a prophetess. That's not what it says here. It simply says, by the inspiration of the Lord, she was a prophetess. The Lord was using her. Were there any other prophetesses in the Bible? Anna in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2? Any others? How about Miriam, the sister of, uh, of Moses, says that she prophesied? Uh, how about Huldah, uh, who was in, uh, it's in 2 Kings 22. If you want to read about Huldah, the king actually goes to inquire of her, the prophetess. Uh, there are also four virgin daughters of Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 20. They're not called prophetesses, but it does say that they prophesy. Okay, so uh, she's not entirely, entirely unique in this regard, but it is notable uh, that as a judge, she is a prophetess. Uh, Frank? Okay. She was a woman prophetess, indeed, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So what is, what is her method of judging Israel? And this, this is something that I think the text is drawing our attention to, something that is unexpected about her. She found a nice tree. She sat there. She holds court. And people would come to her. Uh, she was evidently very well respected, that the people would come to her uh, where she was sitting and giving judgment uh, and, uh, and she is very different than the other judges, the three that came before, uh, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. You can read at the end of chapter 3, after him, that is after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. Okay. So we've got the man with the ox goad. We've got Ehud with the short sword and the fat man. Uh, we've got Othniel at the beginning who leads out the troops to war, and you think of Samson and Gideon and all these other men of military might, and Deborah does not fit that mold at all. And she's judging Israel, and the people are coming to inquire of her. In fact, in chapter 5, the description that it gives, uh, she actually gives it to herself, as she's also a songwriter. Uh, take a look at chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, you know, that guy with the ox goat, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, another violent person, we will find out, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways, the villagers ceased in Israel, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. What a matronly picture, uh, what, a, what a maternal picture. Uh, of this woman who delivers Israel, who arises as a mother. Uh, you imagine, maybe, uh, children who are bickering and fighting with one another, going to mom, tell him to such and such. And she's sitting there, and she's deciding disputes for the people. She's uh, like a mother. Uh, now, this is a, a good contrast between Sisera. Uh, it's interesting that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the word that is used here, uh, verse 5, says that she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel, that's actually the same verb uh, that is used in verse 2. It says the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived or dwelt. It's the same verb. So you've got this contrast between Sisera, this ruthless monster, 
who dwells in Harasheth Hagoyim, and, and one commentator says uh, he holds the tribes of Israel in his iron grip. And then you have this mother who arises to lead Israel with a gentle hand. Uh, and we're reminded that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Okay. So here's Deborah. Uh, she's a prophet of the Lord, prophetess of the Lord, and she is a judge, uh, although quite unexpected. And then there's Barak. Uh, what is wrong uh, with what we know about Barak? Now, we don't want to go too far. He seems to be, uh, despite what might be his shortcomings, seems to be a godly man. He's commended in the book of Hebrews for his faith. And yet, what doesn't sit right with us when we examine the story of Barak? It seems to be uh, that uh, when he receives the command from Deborah, that this is not the first time he's heard this. The ESV draws it out well. Has not the Lord commanded you? It may be that the Lord, through some other prophet, has commanded Barak to go up and to do this, and he's, you're right, he's sort of just on the fence. I, I don't think so. And it's not even until Deborah says, everybody else comes to her, she says, go get him. Go get him and, and, and bring him here. Uh, and he comes, and then even after that, he is reluctant. Now, he's a little bit like Gideon. He's a little bit like Gideon. Now, now why his reluctance? What do you think? Would you have been reluctant? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So there are two ways to look at this. Uh, the normal reaction is to say, oh, he's a coward. Uh, and he might be a little bit cowardly. Uh, and it seems to be that there's a rebuke in the way that she answers him. Uh, I won't go unless you go with me. She says, all right, I'll go, but you need to know that the Lord's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Um, so it seems to be that there's a little bit of a rebuke, but I think there's something to that as well, Tim, uh, that, that he is acknowledging this woman represents the presence of the Lord. She is a prophet uh, who is anointed by God's Holy Spirit to speak for the Lord. Now, it could be that, like in other times in Israel, that becomes almost a, a magic rabbit's foot, a talisman. Like when the Israelites take the Ark of the Lord into battle and, and they think that because they have that thing, uh, but they don't have real faith, uh, that the Lord will save them. And, and maybe that's what's going on. But I think there's another way to look at it, and that's a good point, uh, that, that they are recognizing, and Barak is recognizing, that the Lord is speaking through uh, this woman. Uh, the Lord speaks a promise uh, through Deborah to Barak. It comes with a command. It comes with two promises. He says, go and gather your men. There's the command. And two promises. I will draw out Sisera, and I will deliver him into your hand. Notice that victory is assured. Brian. Yeah. Okay. That's probably a good point. Uh, we find in other places uh, where the Lord sends a spirit of deception among the prophets to say, Ahab, go on up. <laughs> go, we're not going with you, but you go ahead. We'll be right here cheering you on. Yep, yep, go ahead. So maybe that's what's happening as well. And he's, 
and he's gauging this situation, but it, but it is this idea of, is the Lord really in this? Um, is he really in and speaking through Deborah? Is he really commanding and assuring the victory? Because as, as we're going to see tactically, uh, this is probably not a good move on Israel's part in the ways that it unfolds uh, until the Lord steps in, and we'll see that. Um, now, here's, here's the burning question, and I want to get through this quickly. Was it a bad thing? Was it a problem uh, to have a woman leading and judging in Israel? A lot of times, uh, people will point to Deborah and Huldah and Anna and Miriam uh, and say, well, see, uh, here are important women who are standing up and leading God's people and speaking for the Lord. Why not have uh, female elders and female pastors and that sort of thing? Was it a problem uh, for Deborah to be leading the people in Israel at this time? Kathy? Deliverance will come somewhere, somehow, and it may not be from you. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So we don't have the background of that. We don't know of anyone else who turned down the call of the Lord. Uh, but it's, it's possible, I suppose. Uh, you know, we've got to sort of fill in the gaps a little bit if we, if we get there, but it's possible. Is it a problem, Frank, for a woman to be leading and judging in Israel? Okay. Kathy and I talked about this uh, quite a bit as we were studying it together. Like, what we came to was this realization that it's certainly not a problem for God uh, to have this woman. He's the one who's speaking through her. Uh, and so the Lord isn't thrown off. Oh, no, there's this woman who's uh, doing this thing. Well, obviously, he is giving his declaration through this woman. He can, he can raise up whomever he wants. Think of the way that Moses responded to the Lord when he was called as a prophet. Uh, you don't want me because I have a weak tongue and I can't speak very well. And who, who gave a man his mouth? And, and who fills the mouth? And who 
who sends, uh, you know, he sends uh, to Jeremiah, they're going to despise me because of my youth. No, 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 I'm going to fill your mouth and you're going to go. So it's not a problem for the Lord for Deborah to be leading. It certainly doesn't seem to be a problem for Deborah. The scripture says nothing bad about Deborah. It praises her. She is a woman of character and dignity and discernment and grace and all of these wonderful characteristics. It doesn't seem bad for Deborah. It doesn't seem bad for the Lord, but it might be that it's, uh, like Dave is saying, it's bad for the society. Uh, It's an indication that things are not ordered the way that they ought to be, the brokenness of sin. Uh, here's, Here's the way one pastor puts it. He says, this is not the sign of an enlightened society, the fact that Deborah is leading. He says, it is an embarrassment to the men of Israel that Deborah is the judge. It is the judgment of God upon a nation and a church when women occupy the roles that should be filled by men. Is that a statement too far? It's a misinterpretation. Bill? Sure, sure. And uh, yet they're made, I think, but to show their own strength mm-hmm. or to see that as leading in battle right. for the Lord. Right. So as you say, maybe a characteristic mm-hmm. yeah. Now it is one of the judgments of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, chapter three. Uh, speaking to the people who have turned away from the Lord. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 men and the men of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, the expert in charms, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And then later it says, my people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. This is a sign of God's judgment upon his people. Uh, And so it's not bad uh, because the Lord has called Deborah to this extraordinary office, and he does use her, uh, but it does seem to be an indictment uh, that the men were not willing or able, uh, and uh, and so instead he, he judges them, in a sense, by raising up Deborah. I saw Brian first and then Dave. I'll take your word on that one. I, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll take your word on that one from a, from a worldwide standpoint. But from a biblical standpoint, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and the Lord seems to be saying, uh, look, I'll raise up this unexpected, exceptional woman, and it ought to tell you something about what the men ought to be doing. Dave, and then Andrew, and then we'll, we'll move quickly through this. We want to get through a few more things.
Andrew. How so? The palm of Deborah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Possible, possible, yeah. So what we learn is that the Lord can use anyone he chooses. Uh, but we also need to go to the Lord's word and find uh, the correct place for men and women in, in the church and in the family and society. And, and these exceptions uh, don't disprove the rule. Thank you, Brian, for that language. Um, so, so I found it really helpful um, Kathy raised a, a few cross-references here. Um, uh, what should the men be doing instead of waiting for the women to lead them? Uh, and, uh, and Kathy cited 1 Corinthians chapter 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That's a good summary. Uh, Barak should have been firm in the faith instead of waffling, if indeed he was waffling. He should have heard the word of the Lord uh, and reacted to the word of the Lord, and perhaps whoever it was before who, uh, who did not uh, take upon the mantle of leadership should have. Um, but I think there, there is this encouragement here. Um, yeah, all right, so let's keep going. Act 3, I'm calling this one Deliverance Reigns Down. Uh, now, this is the, uh, the battle. Let's read verses 12 through 16. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor... Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Now, let's talk uh, military strategy here. And some of you may know these things. Those of you who have served in the military, some of you may know these things better than I do. Um, but from a worldly standpoint, who is in a better position at the beginning of this battle? Cicero, hands down. Cicero has the advantage. He has the technological advantage, calls it 900 chariots of iron, probably iron reinforced, not like cast iron solid, that would be really heavy, uh, but sort of overlaid with iron in the right places to crush the enemy and the oppressor. Um, and so he's got all these chariots, and he has a lot of men too. Uh, it's, it's not a simple game of arithmetic, 10,000 to 900. Uh, each of these chariots would have had at least two men, one to drive, one to shoot. Uh, and then it says he took up all of the men he had with him. We're not sure what kind of multitude he had, uh, but he had a lot, a technological advantage. What advantage does Barak have? Height, high ground, yeah. He has that advantage. Yep, yep, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but from a worldly standpoint, from a, from a human standpoint, he has the advantage of height. Uh, they're gathered on the mountain. Now, 
uh, ironclad chariots don't go up mountains very easily. And so where does Sisera gather his chariots? The river Kishon. Yeah, so river is probably the wrong word here, maybe something more like wadi. Uh, it's, it's a very wide, flat plain uh, that for a few months out of the year is flooded and full of water and mucky. Uh, but the rest of the year, it is a flat plain. Think the, the salt flats. Uh, perfect place if you want to launch an attack by chariot because it's flat, it's fast, it's packed, dry ground. Uh, and notice uh, the command here. Um, Deborah says, uh, go, uh, he says, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. And it says, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men. He has the advantage of height, and they give up the only advantage they have to go down and meet him on the plain. Now, what happens? Why is it uh, that they are routed? We, we know the divine hand behind here, right? The Lord routed them. Uh, but what do you see uh, that might give us a clue what's going on here? Yep. Probably. So maybe close combat uh, was, was part of it. Uh, what does it say in verse 15? It says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. I was... Uh, I was on a bike trail once with uh, my cousins, uh, I'm sorry, my, my nieces, who at the time were very young. One of them, uh, the oldest, was maybe five, and it started to rain, and we were riding as fast as we could back to the cars. And at one point, uh, being an inexperienced cyclist, she, she got down off of her bike and said, I just have to run. And she ran with her bike for a little while and then realized, this is not faster. I have to get back on my bike and I have to ride. Uh, and here's Sisera. Uh, horse-drawn chariot, and he gets down. Why does he get down and run on foot? Two possibilities. What are the possibilities? Okay. Maybe his horses got killed. Sure. Maybe his chariot was uh, disabled. Uh, I prefer the first interpretation. Let's take a look at chapter 5, uh, verses 15 through 17. I'm sorry, is that the right one? Nope, verses 4 and 5. Deborah and Barak say, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Then uh, look down to verses 20 and 21. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So it did rain, quite unexpectedly. In presumably the dry season, it rained, and there was a flash flood, and all of the chariots were stuck, and they couldn't go anywhere. Uh, and the Lord sends a storm before them. Uh, and, and I think that's what's behind this question uh, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera. Some of the, the translations uh, in verse 14, is this not the day in which the Lord has given Sisera? Can't you see what the Lord is doing? He's, he's raining, there's this torrent, and they're stuck. Uh, and so the Lord shows up. Uh, he sent an unexpected deliverer in Deborah. He spent an unexpe sent an unexpected deliverance in this storm 
uh, and we're about to move into the last act and see God's unexpected deliverance in this other woman. Now, this final act, uh, act chapter, uh, or act four, I'm calling If I Had a Hammer. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Finally, I got a a little bit of a laugh there. Um, uh, Let's read verses 17 and following, and, and we'll look through this quickly. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks of you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, obviously. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, uh, let's talk about the unlikelihood of Jael. Sometimes we are, we are hindered rather than helped uh, by our familiarity with these stories. Uh, just in the sense that we, we miss those delicious little turns in the narrative and the way that the Lord is working in history and time. If you had not read the end of this story and you heard Deborah say, I'll go with you, uh, but the Lord is going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, who would you think the Lord is going to sell Sisera into? Into the hand of Deborah. And J.L. comes out of nowhere. We get this little blurb before about uh, Heber, the, the Kenite, and he's there somewhere close. Uh, and then there's J.L. And what is unexpected, other than the fact that she shows up in the narrative, what's unexpected about J.L.? Oh, yeah. Specifically, peace between the king and her husband. Ooh. Uh, so whatever she does... Uh, is, is unexpected even by her husband. And it may be that she goes against uh, the wishes of her husband to take out the commander of this foreign king's army. Yeah, this is a big deal. Uh, so, so she is this, this standalone. Here is uh, the Kenites, uh, and you can read the beginning of Joshua. The Kenites are aligned with Israel, but there's this family that breaks off, and they align themselves with Canaan, and yet she stands firm in the midst of that and says, no, 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 I'm with and for the people of Israel. So that's unexpected. What else? Unexpected in the sense of the flow of the drama and connection to her husband. How about her deception? Is this the kind of heroine we expect to see? Is this Deborah-like? What does she say? Come in. Don't be afraid. Come in. Uh, Come in to me. Turn aside everything's okay. It's going to be all right. Uh, And there's deception on both sides, by the way. Uh, He tries to get her uh, to cover for him, metaphorically. Uh, If anyone comes to the tent, tell them there's nobody here. 
Uh, that's uh, a little unexpected as well. Uh, generally, you wouldn't search a woman's tent, and a man would not go to a woman's tent and seek shelter. So that's unexpected. Uh, unexpected that he would think that anyone would come looking for him at the, the tent of a woman. Uh, he asks her to cover for him, metaphorically. She covers him uh, literally. Uh, it, it's probably not because he was cold. Uh, this is a, a hot climate. Uh, and, uh, and it's probably not that he's cold. Uh, one interpretation says that it was probably a fly net to keep the bugs off of him so that he could lay and slumber uh, unencumbered. And he could just lay down in peace and rest. Yeah. He was probably wet. He's soaking wet. If it was raining, yes. Good, good. So he's caked in sweat and moisture and mud and bugs. And so she, she makes him comfy. She makes him comfy. What else does she do? Oh, milk. Warm milk uh, in a Middle Eastern culture out of a, a, the skin of a goat or some other animal. Give me some water. I'm so thirsty. Here's some milk. Fill your belly. Lay down and rest. Everything's okay. And then she goes quietly. It was, by the way, in nomadic cultures, the, the Kenites were, were nomads, it was the woman's job to set up the tents. So she knew how to handle a tent peg and a hammer. Uh, and she goes to him softly while he sleeps and drives the tent peg through his head. And there is this outright violence. Uh, one person connected it to Ehud. And you can follow the, the way that it happens. She speaks deceptive words to draw near, to lull him into a false sense of security, and then, bam, at the last moment, uh, just drives the tent peg through, and then later he's found. It's a lot like Ehud, that violent man, uh, in chapter 2, and we're not expecting J.L. Uh, now, why was Barak pursuing Sisera? He was already told he wasn't going to get the glory. Why is he looking for him? Maybe just to make sure that the job is done. Maybe he's still holding out hope. We killed everybody else. Maybe I can still get him. Uh, maybe he doesn't believe the word of Deborah. But the big question here, uh, what are we to think of J.L.? Is she, a, is she a hero or a villain? Brian? He's, he's got to make sure. He's got to make sure. Yep, yep. Hang it on a stake. Make an example of him. Good. So what are we to think of J.L.? Heroine or villain? <laughs> Come on, Cynthia. <laughs> and he'd wake up and what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A splitting headache, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me give you some food for thought. Uh, Arthur Kundal, uh, who is a commentator, rather conservative one, says we have alluded to the fact uh, that the act of JL is one of treachery. No attempt need be made to condone or to whitewash her action. Heroin or villain? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, notice, uh, just like Deborah, sorry, go ahead, Kathy. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. You've got to choose your sides. Are you with God's people or against God's people? And we are sometimes turned off by the deception. We're sometimes turned off by the violence. Uh, but this is the reality of life. Here's a man who had oppressed Israel. Uh, you'll find out if you read the end of chapter 5 that they would likely go on raids and rape the women and oppress the people and steal their things and all sorts of things. Um, and she's had enough. Uh, and, and the violence, I think, fits. Dave, you were going to add a comment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you read, and I, I want to encourage you to read chapter 5 later, it really does give the rest of the story that we didn't have time for today. Um, listen to what it says of J.L., chapter 5, verse 24. Most blessed of women be J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. Do you know anybody else in Scripture who is called the most blessed of women? The Virgin Mary? Yeah. Uh, scripture is unabashedly pro-JL, uh, despite the deception. And, and if you are in a, a junior high ethics class, you can talk about whether it was a lie or it was right, and what would you do if you had Jews hiding under your floor and the SS came. You can deal with that later. Uh, but the scriptures aren't dealing with that. The scriptures are dealing with the people who are being oppressed, and violence is the right uh, answer here to deliver uh, the people from oppression. And uh, I think it's the right answer for our oppression as well. Uh, Kathy, uh, in, in our exchange, uh, asked the question, where else do we see the Lord repay violent oppression to defend his people through another unlikely hero? Well, we see it in the one born of the virgin, uh, very unlikely indeed, and Jesus defends his people from his enemy and ours, and he's the only one who can. Uh, it says in Galatians chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Sometimes that violence is necessary. Uh, so uh, we have already eclipsed our time, but I promise, and we got started late, so please indulge me um, that I wanted to talk about how we connect this same God to our lives. And I want to pose the question, and I'm going to ask Kathy first, uh, and then we'll open it up to anybody else. Um, where have you seen the Lord acting like this in your life? Where have you seen his unexpected deliverance that he seems so delighted to make for his people? Kathy, would you share with us for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll open it up.
Gracious Lord, we pray that you would continue to give us wisdom, wisdom to see the way that you are at work in our lives, in our hearts, in everything, uh, as you lead us gently by the hand. Uh, The scripture uh, refers to you as uh, a mother sometimes over us who who gently cares for us and leads us. Thank you, O Lord, that you are the one, our Father, who is uh, gentle and compassionate. Uh, Help us to rejoice in who you are and prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.